they think they know the answer to the question, but they don't actually know the question because things are just changing inside of companies. So the whole thing on like these deals slipping is be really clear and honest with yourself about reality, about what you know and you don't know, and then work towards getting answers to those questions and knowing the backup plans to those questions in your future conversations. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they've learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, my guest is Brad McGinty. He's the Chief Revenue Officer at Hone. Brad has spent his career leading early stage software sales marketing teams and has participated in funding rounds of over $110 million across 10 different rounds, having fulfilled the role of CRO, VP of Sales, co-founder and board member. Brad, really been looking forward to chat to you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, I kind of feel like I've scratched the surface with the introduction there. I know you've got a ton of experience, particularly in early stage software sales. So for, for the audience that are listening, could you give a bit more context on your story and how you got to where you are? Yeah, absolutely. I imagine that my story is, is similar to many folks uh, who are listening to this thing. I, I stumbled into software sales and startups uh, back in 2006. Um, I talk to so many people nowadays who are intentional about pursuing a career in software sales. I was not that person back in 06. I was looking for a job. I was trying to get married and support a wife and, <laughs> and do all that stuff. And uh, I had a journalism degree. I thought I wanted to be a sports anchor. I had figured out I did not, in fact, want to be a sports anchor. And I, I stumbled into uh, a software startup and just fell in love. Um, and I found that my personality very much lends itself towards uh, these high growth environments where we're constantly trying to iterate and do new things and, uh, and challenge ourselves and take risks. Um, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And I love, I'm an extrovert. I love being persuasive and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, so I, I joined this company called New Media Campaigns. I was the first employee of four co-founders and me. I was there for a couple of months um, and then moved to a company called Bronto Software, which was still small, but had a little bit more infrastructure to teach me how to sell. Um, I very much was at a place where I didn't I had good instincts, but I didn't actually know what I was doing. Um, and so I had a phenomenal VP of sales, a guy named Matt Williamson, who's been the best professional mentor of my life. Um, and also was my co-founder at the next place that I went to, which was called Windsor Circle. Um, so Matt and I left Bronto and we co-founded a software company called Windsor Circle in the e-commerce predictive analytics space. We ended up with two other technical guys. Uh, as four co-founders of the company and raised a bunch of capital in Durham, North Carolina and um, grew revenue a whole bunch and had an amazing experience there. I did that for eight years. Uh, I was VP of sales, sat on the board, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, held customer success for a little while, marketing for a little while, um, various things that one does in an early stage company when you're the co-founder. Uh, and then I joined 15.5 uh, back in 2017. Performance management, uh, kind of check-in oriented HR software. I joined in there about 30 employees. I left in there around 300. Uh, we raised 90 something million dollars. We grew revenue tremendously uh, in the five and a half years that I was there. Started as VP of sales, became chief revenue officer, 
oversaw uh, sales, sales development, revenue operations, partnerships, professional services, marketing for a little while, customer success, customer support. Um, did a ton of our finance stuff. Um, had a really amazing experience. It was, it was super fun. Uh, and then left there in December and joined a company called Hone uh, in January. Um, Hone is live learning at scale. Uh, we have an amazing technology that brings uh, facilitators and coaches in to teach uh, interpersonal and, and kind of power skills. People call them soft skills. We now call them power skills. <clears throat> and so um, it's a really cool cohort-based model. The training is super effective at teaching people how to be productive and as individual contributors and be fantastic managers and leaders in their roles. Uh, so I joined in January and we're sitting here in May, about five months in. I'm Chief Revenue Officer, oversee uh, sales and account management, sales development. Perfect. And I guess it makes two of us that studied journalism and then decided, nope, this is not the one for me. Also was going to go down the route of, oh, I want to be a sports broadcaster. And well, apparently software is uh, software sales is the way to go. So, <laughs> uh, same thing, same thing. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, cl- close enough, right? So aside from that, uh, before I digress too much, now you're coming in at home and got a really rich and diverse background coming into it. How are you envisioning that the sales process is going to look and how are you shaping it up based off your previous experience? Oh, such a good question. So like many companies, Hone is in the process of moving up market. We have found that our larger customers, they create better land and expand opportunities. They're stickier over time. The CAC, you know, the LTV to CAC numbers are a lot healthier than they are with our SMB customers. It's more cost efficient to support them. You know, All the unit economics are better as we move up market. And so... Our sales process continues to evolve and change, certainly at, at home. Um, and one of the most important things that we've done recently, which is something that um, I can't advocate for strongly enough is for organizations that are wrestling through this decision, um, is that we cut off SMBs. Um, if you're coming in and, and you're you know, in our SMB employee count range, um, we say, sorry, we're not the right fit for you. Here are a couple of other companies that could be a better fit for you. Um, and we don't work with them. And it's hard to look at potential sales and say no to those. Um, but that's what we've done. And it's, um, it's brought a lot of focus and uh, discipline into uh, how we continue to evolve and build processes and evolve and build messaging and the whole go-to-market process around it. So everything that we're doing is reflective of a desire for us to move up market. So, you know, you think about I'm not going to, you know, we're not doing kind of mega deal sales here, but, you know, our average contract is into the six figures. And so it's a lot uh, around doing a really good job of discovery. Our solutions consultants, we we call them learning strategists, given that we're in this world of learning and development. Um, they play a very consultative role. They're not de- demo jockeys. Like they're understanding the customer's, you know, current learning landscape and how they want to improve that and what the competencies are that they're trying to develop in their team. And they're being very uh, thoughtful and prescriptive. And it's not a super salesy conversation because our customers want an advisor. They want a consultant who can partner with them and help them drive towards business outcomes. And so our sales account executives are doing a good job of evolving into that process. Um, But it certainly looks different. And it requires um, a good deal of... Uh, discipline and kind of cross-functional coordination as you get different roles involved in that process. Amazing. And through kind of the research that I've done, I know that you're overseeing obviously not just the sales function and the wider go-to-market function, but as part of that, you've got enablement and operations. So could you speak to 
I guess, how you've got those different departments working together and, and ultimately how you're looking to get them to play off each other as you evolve your process. Yeah, absolutely. So as we all know, enablement and sales operations are in this kind of split personality role of having to be kind of service and support functions to everything that's happening across go-to-market while simultaneously being uh, you know, strategic thinkers who are helping to de- design and shape the strategy. Um, so there's a little bit of tension there that those folks uh, in enablement and, and sales operations have to follow. And so what we try to do is at the beginning of our planning period, just step aside and say, okay, what, what do we need to do uh, as, as we're trying to go sell? Like we're trying to move up market. How do we need to reshape processes? How does messaging need to change? Um, do we need to be doing more on sites? You know, what does the data say about our conversion rates down the funnel? And so, the goal is to step, a, kind of step first, look at the data, and understand the places of inefficiency and the places of bottlenecks in our processes, and look at this together as enablement, sales ops, sales development leadership, and sales leadership. So across these different functions, and understand what's happening in the the new customer acquisition journey. And then from there, design our plans. Um, and we do this collectively as a group to, to understand what it is that we need to go do as we build out the OKRs. And so then a lot of where operations and enablement is stepping in to say, okay, well, here's the role that I need to play to support this initiative. That might be kind of a sales development-owned initiative or a sales-owned initiative, but they're not going to be successful doing that unless we play our part um, of, of delivery there. So... Uh, and then we got, you know, a Monday meeting where we all come together. And, you know, it's a little bit of a status update, OKR update kind of conversation. Go through each OKR. What are we on track? Are we off track? Um, where do we need cross-functional help uh, to get this stuff done? Um, and then I think it's really important to set a set of common, you know, measurement objectives, right? So, you know, sales operations, revenue enablement, they, they should be held accountable to revenue. And so we're all driving towards, you know, this, this similar set of metrics and KPIs. And what's that? Was the OKR system that you mentioned something that existed beforehand or is it something that you brought in after joining? Yeah, that's a great question. So Hone has been doing OKRs for a long time. Uh, at 15.5, where I was previously, we followed OKRs. Um, at Windsor Circle, we didn't quite do OKRs, but we did a program that was pretty similar through Entrepreneur's Operating System or EOS uh, for folks who might know that. The book's called Traction, phenomenal book that I do highly recommend. Um, so the, the methodology has been similar, but the, the the place where I have made a change at home, I mean, I'm, we've been through kind of now two planning cycles as I've been here for five months at home, or four, four months actually, at home, four and a half. So we've been through two planning cycles. And what we were able to implement for the second planning cycle is this kind of extra layer of OKR planning in the cascading nature of what we do with OKR. So at so many companies, you've got you know your company-wide OKRs, and then we immediately go down to the department level. And I think what gets missing in this world of go-to-market that you and I play in is the we just kind of call them the revenue organization or the go-to-market organization OKRs. And so we want to stop and say, okay, across the whole go-to-market engine, marketing to sales to customer success to renewals and account management, what do we need to improve? And there we set a set of OKRs. Those OKRs, of course, have to support the company OKRs. But it's important that those are established before we're setting department-level objectives. Because what's happening in marketing and sales, and part of the way we end up with marketing and sales being unaligned, (laughs) 
is what we commonly do is we set a bunch of sales objectives, we set a bunch of marketing objectives, and they're designed to support the company objectives. But we haven't stopped and said, okay, well, across the whole go-to-market process and across the whole customer journey, what are the things that we need to improve? And those things are, if you're doing them right, they're almost always cross-functional in nature. And so before we start to fill up the the jar with a bunch of sales development and sales and uh, you know account management and marketing-based objectives, get these go-to-market objectives locked in, understand the racy, you know, who the owners are for these different things, the prioritization level of these things. And then from there, step down into uh, the department level stuff. Um, so if you look at my objectives right now for my sales team, the only objective that they have that exists outside of the go-to-market objectives is one on some sales training. There's a set of specific things that kind of don't relate to marketing. They don't relate to sales development. They don't relate to customer success um, that they're doing there. But everything else that they're working on, all of, all of their capacity was taken up by these go-to-market objectives that they needed to contribute towards. So I just think that that's this layer that always gets missing that is so critical to uh, creating really efficient go-to-market engines. What would you say, and I appreciate it's um, uh, very uh, going to be very like business-specific, but what would you say have been perhaps some of the more effective kind of objectives that you've set that have really brought teams together? It's a good question. We went off script, everybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love throwing a curveball, right? Yeah. Um, really effective objectives. So, you know, this would be classic, but I think it's it is really critical. Which is like the auditing of of messaging and positioning work to understand. Okay, what are our differentiators? I think oftentimes we get caught up in the world of differentiators against specific vendors. I really like category-based differentiators. Like, there's always substitutes to what you do, right? And so can we look at a category rather than a specific company and get really clear on what are the differentiators there? So like the messaging work is like getting really clear on you know the, the three to four points of value that my product delivers, the three or four you know, differentiators against the different categories that we compete against, <clears throat> um, the, the three or four pains that are most important for the persona that we sell into. Developing that stuff, like, you know, we can argue like it's a product marketing job, but like they're not operating in a vacuum, right? They need to be partnered with sales and sales development to develop that stuff. And so we do that kind of work and we get really crystallized on it. And then enablement has to step in and do a ton of training reinforcement. Like when you were in school, Lee, like you... You were taught stuff in a classroom, you did homework assignments around it, and then you were tested. Like you sat down for a graded test or quiz to really understand that you learned the knowledge. What we do today is we like have people sit through like a 25 minute webinar, basically. Like, you know, it's our own internal stuff, but it's a webinar, basically. We've chunked a bunch of PowerPoint slides up. Then we put our PowerPoint deck into like a wiki, and we're like, cool, we've trained them. They're good now. Yeah. Like, that's not how it works, right? So enablement steps in to uh, to deliver the training, and, and pr- obviously in partnership with sales leadership and product marketing, and ensure that people actually know and have memorized and studied the information. Like I build flashcards for myself, just like my eighth grader does yeah. <laughs> when she's studying for a biology test. And so then the next step is like auditing, right? Can we audit... Uh, cadences or sequences that sales development is setting out. Like, can we go back and look at our intro call decks and our demo decks and make sure that they're really aligned? So 
you say like, you know, what are some of the good ones? That's not one that you're going to do on an every quarter basis, but like you should be doing that at least annually um, to reassess this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I appreciate I threw a curveball, but it's a really good point and often gets overlooked as well, right? But because it's something, it's, it's the messaging that marketing typically owns, but how often does marketing create it and then just sort of lob it over the fence and go, here you go, enjoy. And then, and appreciate maybe tarring with, with, you know, folks with the same brush, but on sales, it's like, well, yep, this is what I've got. And now I'm just going to run with that without really thinking, why the hell am I saying this? <laughs> well, yeah, what, what, I mean, what oftentimes happens, and this is a real thing, right? Like we want to create this kind of standardized messaging. And we, we theoretically want people to like say the scripts. And we don't want it to sound too marketing, like you're reading the script. But what a very real thing happens for individual people is that they learn to talk about their companies in ways that are very unique and personalized to them. And so we, we all recognize that nobody's going to just like follow and repeat the script every time. Fine. But we've got to get really clear that people have memorized the talking points. Like, give me the bullets. And really make sure that people know the bullets. And then the way in which they incorporate those bullets into what they're going to say matters a lot. But people need to have some flexibility and autonomy. And it's super common that enablement, product management, or pursuing product marketing are all frustrated. Like, ah, people are going off script. People are going off script. It's like, well, duh. Like, (laughs) they're human beings. Of course they're going off script. And and I've I've found this when, you know, writing, writing scripts for... For, for sales development and trying to write it where it's like, oh yeah, but they could just take off in this direction. And the thought that the, your sales development rep is going to look at it and go, well, I've got off script. I mean, that's it. I've, I've, I've got nothing, right? It, it's it's natural that instinct would, would come in at that point. And so I find it's to, almost to your point, it's far more valuable having those pointers almost as guardrails, but ultimately allowing you to own what, what it looks like within those guardrails. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's very much about guardrails. Like, let me give you some frameworks to think about it. And then the, like, the reason I've hired you into this company is because I trust you. Like, I think that you have the capability to be great at this or you already are great at this. Like, I, I don't want to cut you off the knees in terms of bringing your own intellect and your own judgment into the conversation that you're in right now. But like, let me give you the guardrails uh, to kind of keep you on track and, and make sure that you're not, you know, overselling or underselling or... Um, using ineffective messaging, but at the same time, like I got to give you some autonomy to be the vibrant, you know, smart, capable person that you are. Yeah, exactly. Brad, I want to bring us back to something that you were talking about earlier when you were looking at your your funnel, like across the whole, and looking for you know the areas that you want to improve. And and what sprung out that I'm quite interested in, and appreciate you've been there what four four and a half, going on five months now. What's one area that you know, through looking at the data that you've seen and gone, oh God, that that's a real hole for us right now. And um, and even though you may not have necessarily got the answer of it, how are you trying to solve it at the minute? Yeah. So I'll give you two answers to this one. You know, for for us at Hone, um, the, the big opportunity for us to improve is around discovery. It's so foundational to everything that happens, especially in an enterprise sale, uh, where you are more consultative and you are really selling solutions and not features. You can skip those things when it is a very straightforward, simple product offering, solving a point solution, you know, solving a point problem. Um, that stuff can kind of work. 
What happens though, I think, and I've seen this you know, over and over again in different organizations where I've advised or worked at, is that it's reasonably easy because people are curious to get somebody you know, through you know, some kind of qualification call into some discovery and then into a demo. You know, whether you're doing a demo on call number one or call number three or whatever, like you can get people to that point. And then what happens at the end of every demo is, hey, this has been great. I'm going to go debrief with my team or the three of us who sat through this demo. We're going to go debrief and we'll get back to you. Crickets. <laughs> Silence. Disappears, right? And so, you know, obviously there's things that we do at the beginning of that call, right? We name, okay, three potential outcomes from this demo, right? And I, and I want you to be as clear as you can be when we get to the end of this thing 45 minutes from now, right? You've looked at it. We're not a fit. Just tell me. Yeah. Like, don't just disappear on me. Like, just tell me that we're not a fit for what you need. You won't, you won't hurt my feelings. The second one is that you're going to say, this is amazing. Send me the order form. This is exactly what we're looking for. And then uh, the third outcome is that you're going to go, oh, this is kind of interesting. I'm not quite sure. We need to debrief as a team. That's probably the most likely outcome because I've been doing this a lot and that's human nature. So that's fine. But let's go ahead and get that scheduled so that we can actually come back and get some clarity on, on where you are. Um, because the next step for us is to build a proposal and to give you more clarity on exactly what we're going to do and how much it's going to cost. But let's not have this thing just you know drag on for months with you, you know, having disappeared because you're too scared to hurt my feelings and tell me no. So, so much of what you're doing is you're setting the table for that, you know, in your first call and your second call at the beginning of that demo call. And then when you come back to it, and of course, make sure you leave time at the end of your call to close well. You know, we finish our demo with 90 seconds to go. We're like, you know, can we schedule the next call? It's like, uh, manage the clock. You're the account executive here. Manage the clock, please. And so um, we come back to that and people have an understanding of what to expect. And hopefully you've done a good job of setting up that upfront contract. So there's a lot of, an, of training that happens there. We need to role play that conversation with our account executives repeatedly. And what is really important is that your account executive needs to be able to close for a very clear and definitive next step after that stage. It can't be vague. It can't be, well, maybe we could do this, or maybe we could do this, or maybe we could do this. Like, let's just have a debrief call, right? It needs to be the step after this is that we're going to have this meeting. It's going to deliver this value to you with these outcomes. And that's the next step of this process. The person can argue and say that that's not what they want to do. Fine. But you, you have to control the conversation and lead this dance and be very definitive and clear because that's what continues to keep your customer engaged. I really like the, th the thing that jumps out to me from that is really the consistency that you start to embed in, in your account executives, in your sales process as a whole. So outside of that very specific stage, how do you actually create consistency in your sales process? Are you deploying a methodology like a lot of businesses do? Are you on the side of, no, hate methodologies, throw that out the window? What's your belief? Oh, I love this one. It all starts with the opportunity stages being really clearly defined with entry and exit criteria. Like the, you, you need to have a place where you've written down stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, what you're doing in that stage and what has to have happened in the past tense. It has to have happened before you can move your deal to the next stage. And 
I understand that in, there's two parts that like there's one like there's real life what's actually happening in the customer conversations and the fact that you're doing elements of call four and call one and all that kind of stuff fine but what's happening in your CRM in terms of how you're moving a deal from stage to stage to stage has to follow this process and as much as I want every account executive to inspect every single deal and follow this religiously they're not going to and the, the key linchpin in here is the sales manager. The frontline sales manager has to be the person who is policing this and driving the accountability. Can't be the VP. It's not the CRO. I want it to be the sales rep, but it's not real life. It has to be the sales manager who's inspecting the deals and going, you have this thing at proposal stage. Let's ensure that you've done the other steps before proposal stage to ensure that we're there. When this is driven home in one-on-ones every single week during pipeline review, that's when you start to get the reps actually following the consistent process. The most important thing that a board wants, that the CEO wants, that the CRO wants is to hit forecast. <laughs> In a weird, like, I don't know, it's 1A, 1B kind of thing. Like, sure, hit the goals, great. But you know, if I walk into a board meeting and I've exceeded my goals uh, and I've missed my forecast, okay, fine. They're going to be annoyed with me for missing forecast. But they're going to be happy that I hit goal. But if, certainly, if you miss goal, you better damn well hit forecast. And the only way that we can scale this thing in a repeatable fashion, actually have a funnel that we can understand. The data means something inside of this funnel. Like we talked about identifying bottlenecks in our funnel. Like whenever reps going rogue and doing their own thing, like I don't have data that I can rely on to make decisions around our strategy anymore. But it all starts with a clearly defined piece of paper. Ideally, it's a piece of paper that lives on the desk, by the way. Mine actually does live on my desk. But it's going to live on your wiki or whatever your intranet is. That is just stage one, stage two, stage three. Here's what you're doing in the stage. And here are the exit criteria. You can't move it to the next stage till you've done the thing. And we should be able to audit that. And it should be pretty black and white. And it can't be seven things, by the way. Like It's got to be like the one or two things that matter most. It all starts there. And... Which, uh, which I think is great, just in the in the pure, it's, it's beautiful how simple it is. So what I'm intrigued by then is, how does that help you to make a more accurate forecast at the end of it? Because presumably, even though it gets to that late stage, you know, you've got a rep going, yeah, yeah, it, it's 100% going to close. You know, it's already hit my criteria. And then it's like, <laughs> 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 yeah, that's right. Um, so... You know, at that point, like we get to bring in data analytics, which continue to get better, better, better. And, you know, EBSTA's got technology for this and Atrium has technology for this. I'm, a, I'm an investor in Atrium, but, but we won't tell the first steps of that. Okay? <laughs> um, you know, Gong is now trying to do stuff around this, right? So we got all this different technology that helps you with kind of probability by stage, which is great. Um, and so we're going to have some technology that's going to give us a forecast number, which is one data point. Now, I personally am a fan of as you get close to the end of your period, quarters, you know, year, whatever your kind of your cadence is there. We operate on calendar quarters, well, fiscal quarters at home. Um, I'm okay with a rep overriding the probability that's in Salesforce. And what is where that becomes most important is where they're saying, okay, I'm actually 85% confident this deal is going to close, but I'm only 50% sure it's going to close this quarter. Like there's another chance it's going to close next quarter. So I'm actually going to mark this thing down appropriately. So our weighted forecast will reflect the fact that for this quarter, we're kind of 50, 50. 
on this sucker. So it should be reasonably rare that we're doing that. Hopefully you've got enough opportunities across all of your reps, across your whole funnel, that um, while any given deal is a one or a zero, it's you're going to win it or you're not going to win it. You can theoretically win it for less money. You can win it for more money and get a little variation there. But it's a one or a zero. But across the whole portfolio of deals, you're going to end up with something that is reasonably accurate across them. Yeah. Super interesting, like how you like start to approach that. So, um, if we think, and and what actually comes to mind is getting to in the stages before getting to that point. And I wonder whether what you were talking about before in terms of consistency starts to tie into this. So, as it's getting to those later stages of of the of the sales process, one of the biggest things that comes up a lot on the, on the podcast is around deals actually slipping. And how do you approach? Um, either preventing that, reducing that? How do you approach that problem? Yeah. So let's talk MedPick for a second. Medic, MedPick. I do not believe that Medic or MedPick is a sales methodology. I love it, but it's not a methodology. It's a checklist to audit your deal. And the best, the best thing that it gives you is clarity into reality. Like, do, do I know who the economic buyer is? Yes or no? Am I talking to them? Yes or no? Right? Am I engaged with them? Great. It's like, I don't even know who they are. I at least need to accept reality and now work towards developing a relationship with my economic buyer. So this whole thing of deal slipping, it starts with uh, us understanding a lot of the details in Medic or MedPick and having clarity on them. And I think MedPick is better because it's, it's the paperwork process yeah. <laughs> that gets, that's missing in Medic, yeah. which is why deals slip. And especially now, part of where deals are slipping is because the CFO is ultimately the decision maker on every single deal. And it's got to go to this like buying committee inside of a finance team for final approval. And that is slowing everything down. So the question for the sales rep is, uh, hey, wh- when's this deal supposed to close? Is anybody going on vacation? Are all the people that we need to talk to going to be around and working? What does the paperwork process look like from a procurement perspective, which is both legal and infosec? Like it's not one of those two things. It's legal and infosec. And what is the process to get budget reauthorized? Because people are like, oh, I have budget for this. Like, yeah, you do until you actually want to go sign the contract. And then they tell you that you don't have budget anymore. So like, you have to get budget reauthorized. How long is that process going to take? Has your buyer actually bought stuff before? And when was the last time they bought stuff? Did they buy it 18 months ago when the economy was a little bit different? Did they buy stuff 18 you know, days ago and they know what it's like to do so now in their current environment, inside of their current company with the current players involved? Most of the answers to those questions by your sales rep, if their sales rep's really honest, are going to be, I don't know, right? And so now, great, we've accepted reality. (laughs) We're not (laughs) fooling ourselves, which is the most important thing. Don't fool yourself. And so now we can talk about that deal and say, okay, well, we got a 90% chance of getting it done, but this quarter, it might be 30%. And then now, because you have this checklist of things that you actually don't know the answers to, now you can begin a strategy of getting the answers to those questions. Um, and unfortunately our main points of contact oftentimes on our deals don't have the answers to the questions. They think they know the answer to the question, but they don't actually know the question because things are just changing inside of companies. So the whole thing on like these deals slipping is be really clear and honest with yourself about reality, about what you know and you don't know. 
and then work towards getting answers to those questions and knowing the backup plans to those questions in your future conversations. I love that it begins at the beginning because very often it's like, oh, well, what can I do as it gets near towards the end? And then all of a sudden you're panicking and it's just like, oh my God. It's, and, and, and by that point, it's, uh, it's too late, right? That's right. And so final, final question then, Brad, what is one book that you would recommend to other revenue and sales leaders? Yeah. My favorite sales book is, again, it's not a methodology. It's more of a philosophy book. Um, and it's The Challenger Customer. Um, a lot of us read The Challenger Sale back in 2012 and 13 when it first came out. It's a great book. The sequel is better. The Challenger Customer um, is kind of follows the same methodology of Challenger Sale. Challenger Sale is you got five personas of seller. Challenger customers, you have seven personas of buyer. One of them, well, kind of four of them are just kind of ineffective entirely. But in those three of the four that are ineffective, they're kind of tricky. Like one of them is the friend. The friend might tell you a lot of information. You think they're an amazing point of contact. Who's your champion? And they may love you, but their coworkers don't trust their judgment. And so therefore, they ignore the recommendations of this person who you think is your champion, but is actually your friend. And you got these other three personas of buyer who are super effective at mobilizing people to get stuff done. So they call that group of people your mobilizers. You have a skeptic, you have the teacher, um, and I can't remember the name of the last one there, but there, there's three phenomenal profiles in there. So, so that's really great. And then the second part of it I love is um, it just simplifies a buyer journey, which is to find the problem, to find the solution, pick the vendor. That's what buyers are doing. What is the actual problem here that I'm trying to solve? What does the solution to that problem look like? The solution is your categories. Right? Like, I'm really tired this morning because last night I got four hours of sleep, which is a true story because of a flight delay. That's my problem. I'm very tired. What is the solution? Is it a nap? Is it an energy bar? Is it a cup of coffee? Is it a Red Bull? Like, what, what, what is the, do I need to go on exercise? Like, what is the solution to my problem? Great. It's coffee. Cool. Am I going to have my coffee in a latte? Am I going to have it just like straight up a nice coffee? Like whatever. So pick the vendor as the last step of this thing. We as sellers so oftentimes spend all of our time picking the vendor. We just sell our features. We sell our... But the, part of what the book talks about is how you have these buying committees. They themselves have not actually agreed on what the problem is they're trying to solve. Therefore, they can't make high quality purchase decisions and deals stagnate all the time. Because you're sitting there telling them how your features are so amazing, but they don't actually agree on the problem they're trying to solve. And so you as a seller have to go backwards and, and teach your mobilizer to get this whole buying committee to stop and step back and say, what is the problem that we're actually trying to solve for here? And then you can move into, okay, great. What is the solution to that problem? And the hardest part of the three steps of define the problem, define the solution, pick the vendor, the hardest of the three steps is to define the solution. We can agree that I'm tired. Cool. Let's say my wife and I are doing this. We agree I'm tired. There's no doubt about that. Well, what's the solution? I want to go take a nap. And she's like, dude, you can't take a nap. We got three kids and I need you to be a hands-on father for those three kids. You can't take a nap. You just need to drink a Red Bull. I'm like, Red Bull is terrible for your body. It's full of chemicals. I don't want to drink a Red Bull. And we're fighting over what the solution to the problem looks like. And then we actually decide it's a cup of coffee. And now picking the cup of coffee is the easiest part of the whole process. Pick the vendor is the easiest of the three steps. So anyway, my favorite book is Challenger Customer. And it's because it, it clarifies this process and it helps you to develop messaging and content and sales talk tracks and a mindset for your seller 
that takes them backwards in the process to defining the problem. Because your buyers haven't actually agreed on what the problem is. So you're in there like, look at my amazing feature set. And deals die because the customer hasn't agreed on the problem, let alone the solution. I love that. So, so Fox. But I love it. Maybe, maybe just buy all of the above to, to solve the tiredness. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Brad, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Last thing before we go, for, for anyone listening, if they've got any uh, questions or want to connect, where can they find you? Uh, best place to be LinkedIn. Turns out I'm like the only Brad McGinnity on the internet. And so uh, LinkedIn.com slash, I don't know, in slash McGinnity. Um, there it is. Don't forget that second eye. It is hiding out there. But uh, Brad McGinnity on LinkedIn. And uh, would love to chat and keep the dialogue going online. Amazing. I'll, uh, I'll put links down to that as well as the Challenger customer. And, uh, and you mentioned traction as well down in the show notes below. Brad, thank you so much again for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, to everyone that's listened, we'll catch you next week. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.